Well, hello, and thank you so much for joining me for episode number four of the Healthy Skeptic MD podcast. I hope everything is good where you are. It's been a better week here in LA. The fires are a little better. The air is a little clearer. The NBA finals are in full swing. Go Celtics. Shana Tova for those of you celebrating Rosh Hashanah this week. So we have a full week of health news to go through, and there's some political twists this week, as there often are, but we will do our very best to stick to the science of it all. Uh, my guests this week are my good friends and colleagues, Dr. Paul Hyman and Sarisha Mohan. They're both primary care doctors, and they're going to give us some insights about telehealth now in COVID and beyond. If you do like what you hear today, please check us out. Subscribe on YouTube uh, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Healthy Skeptic MD. You can also follow on Instagram or email me at healthyskepticmd at gmail.com and send me your questions, and I'll do my best to take a stab at them uh, on the podcast. And that's actually where we'll start today with a couple questions from listeners. So the first one is a very appropriate one. Uh, someone uh, asked, why is it that we doctors are so quick to adopt masks and advocate for their use when there really aren't as rigorous studies as we would like to support them? And this is an absolutely fair critique. We do not have those high quality, rigorous, randomized trials, but what we do have is very good ecologic data. We know that countries where masks are commonly used, such as many of the Asian countries, have much lower rates of COVID spread than we do in the United States. It's a relatively safe intervention. And I think in the face of time pressures and the seriousness of the situation, it's right to err on the side of caution. And I do have to say, although they're not randomized trials, the ecologic data is very compelling that where masks are used, uh, the virus seems to spread much less effectively. So that's why I support masks. And I really do think we should all be using them as much as possible when we're in close contact with others. The second question gets at those uh, the politics. So this week, there's been some back and forth with the CDC on this issue of whether the virus is transmitted through aerosol or droplets. Now, let me begin by saying this is actually an important question. The reason being, if this is a droplet spread condition, if you keep at least six feet away from other people, you're probably going to be safe because those respiratory droplets don't travel much farther than this. Whereas if this is an aerosol spread condition, uh, all bets are off. If you're in the same vicinity as somebody, you could become infected. So, so far, it does appear that uh, droplet is the predominant mechanism of spread. We know this because, for example, household contacts of someone who's positive have a pretty good chance of not contracting the virus if you, follow, if you wear masks and keep six feet. In contrast, other conditions like measles and chickenpox that are aerosol spread, everyone in the house is going to get it because even if you are not if you're further away from six feet, it's going to travel through the air uh, and get you. Still, there are some pretty compelling reports that in certain circumstances, it can spread through aerosol. So I think the practical advice here is that if we wear masks, keep six feet, we're going to be doing a pretty good job of protecting ourselves. But in addition, 
Uh, we know that this aerosol spread does seem to happen in poorly uh, ventilated indoor environments. So the extent possible, try to avoid this. That's why I always keep saying stay outdoors as much um, as possible there. And it'll be interesting to see where the CDC ends up uh, coming down on this issue. Okay, so now I wanna start off with a little bit of non-COVID news. Uh, so the first uh, topic I'm gonna uh, mention here is uh, the issue of blocked coronary arteries, uh, which are the ones that lead to heart attacks. And we know from pretty good evidence that for most patients with stable disease, I'm not talking about people who are having an active heart attack, but for people with stable disease, uh, for most of these patients, it's better to use medications like blood pressure and cholesterol medications rather than jumping to an invasive procedure like a stent to open up uh, that artery. We know those patients do at least as well. So this, uh, there were two new analyses in JAMA Internal Medicine. The first found that about a quarter of patients who ended up getting those stenting procedures um, didn't actually meet the criteria. They probably should have gotten medical therapy first. The second was um, one that looked at Department of Justice investigations of cardiologists obviously the concern being that they were pushing these procedures uh, inappropriately. And they did find evidence that uh, in some cases, cardiologists were exaggerating the degree of blockages to help justify uh, the procedure. So this is important. It just reminds us, buyer beware. Uh, if you are being encouraged to get a, a procedure for a heart blockage uh, and it's not an emergent heart attack situation, uh, this is definitely a time to step back, get a second opinion and see if it really is necessary or maybe a more conservative uh, approach with medications would work uh, better. Okay, well, let's now discuss a couple COVID-related studies, and I want to pick up where we left off with our interview with Dr. David Katz last week. As you may recall from that interview, Dr. Katz was concerned that uh, some of the economic closures and social isolation that's resulting from the pandemic was going to impact the mental and psychological health of uh, Americans. And we are indeed seeing this happening as evidenced by a couple new studies this week. There was a science paper that found a substantial uptick in acute anxiety and depression, particularly among those with pre-existing um, uh, mental health disorders, and also those who experienced a lot of COVID-related stresses, for example, loss of your job. And not surprisingly, uh, there was also a correlation between the number of hours that you were watching the news uh, and the likelihood that you'd experience a worsening of anxiety and, and depression. Just an important reminder from us, it's always not a bad idea to take a break from the news. Okay, another important uh, study relates to a plane travel. This was a Centers for Disease Control uh, and Prevention report. Uh, it looked at a case in which uh, there was an international flight from London to Vietnam, a 10-hour flight, and there was one infected passenger on that plane, and they have very convincing evidence that that one person infected 16 people on the flight. So point number one, uh, plane travel does seem to be uh, a, a real risk for infection. And if we can avoid 
plane travel to the extent possible. That's, that's a good thing. Um, the other interesting thing is that most of these infections were people in the nearby aisles. Maybe some of them were a little bit longer than that six foot uh, radius, but they were mostly in, this, in the same general area. However, a quarter of them, four of the 16 infections were people further down in the aisles in the plane. So this highlights that there can be some aerosol uh, transmission. Uh, it's not a huge amount, but there can be aerosol transmission. Certainly a plane is an enclosed, poorly ventilated indoor uh, environment. Uh, the next study I wanted to mention is that scientists from Houston did a genetic analysis of the virus, and they are certainly finding that the virus is mutating. Um, this is important uh, and noteworthy for a couple reasons. The first thing is some of these mutations appear to be making the virus uh, more contagious, although not more aggressive and not more virulent. And this is actually what we would expect. Uh, viruses do not actually want to kill us or our host. Uh, they wanna keep us alive so we go out and do our thing and spread them to the next person and that's how they keep themselves going. So this is, this is common, but of course it is concerning that the virus is mutating to become more uh, contagious and it raises concerns about whether vaccines and masks are gonna continue to be effective as the virus uh, mutates around us. It does raise the possibility that this could turn into another flu-like virus where we're always playing catch up and every year we need to develop a new vaccine to keep up with the virus. So the final piece of COVID news I wanna mention is last week I mentioned that there was not great transparency so far with the companies doing the COVID vaccine trials. And in response to some of this criticism, uh, Moderna and Pfizer did release the blueprints of, um, of the trials. Uh, this is great because now we'll be able to track more closely what we're looking for. Uh, but there was an important concern raised uh, by these blueprints. So typically in a vaccine trial, uh, there'll be an independent body that's not related to the study researchers or the company that will take a look in the middle of the analysis. And they do this check to see, is this vaccine clearly working? If that's the case, then we don't want to continue the study. We want to get the product out to as many people as quickly as possible, or it's not working and let's stop exposing people and move on to the next idea. So both Pfizer and Moderna actually have several of these interim checks. And the rationale for this is, this is such a fast moving situation, we wanna get the answer as soon as possible. But the problem is the more times we look, the more chance there is that there's gonna be a false error that just by chance, at that time when they look, there's gonna be a favorable result and the study's gonna get stopped. And we're actually gonna think the vaccine works and it doesn't. So uh, that'll be something important to track and be careful not to overinterpret. So that's the news for the week. And let's move on now to our interviews with Dr. Hyman and Dr. Mohan. All right, well, let's jump into this week's interview. We have two great guests with us. Um, and they're both actually friends and colleagues of mine this week. So uh, let me begin by introducing them. So the first is uh, Dr. Paul Hyman. He's the medical lead of an eight provider primary care practice at Midcoast Parkview Health, which is a medical organization in Midcoast, Maine. He recently authored an article titled The Disappearance of the Primary Care Physical Examination Losing Touch, which you can all see here, which actually 
went viral as much as a medical article can. And he got a lot of uh, media attention and an NPR uh, interview. So we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about that today. And Paul and I are friends actually since uh, medical school. So thanks for, for joining Paul. And then uh, we have Dr. Sarisha Mohan. She's a diplomat of the American Board of Family Medicine and a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine here at the Keck School of Medicine of USC uh, with me, where we're colleagues. Uh, she has uh, served as the telehealth lead for the Department of Family Medicine, and she's also going to be an associate program director for the upcoming Keck Medicine Family uh, Residency uh, Program. And Sarisha, uh, obviously in the midst of COVID, has been, uh, been a uh, instrumental person here at uh, Keck uh, as we have uh, expanded our telehealth program. So let me begin by just asking, um, Paul, you're a primary care doctor in Maine. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your practice and the patients that you serve. Sure. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm excited for this podcast. Uh, so I would say my, uh, my office or my clinic is a bread and butter primary care practice. It's part of a, a local community health system. Um, so we're located in what's called Midcoast, Maine, which is about 30 minutes north of Portland, not necessarily rural, not necessarily urban, um, but kind of in between. And uh, we're part of a community health system, but we recently joined a larger accountable care organization, a larger health system, which is located in the southern part of the state. Um, and I'd say my my patient population is is, in terms of socioeconomics, is spans the spectrum and in terms of ages as well i'd say about a third of my patients are over 65 and a third are under 18 and a third right in the middle so it's a quite a range of patients that we see in the office all right so it sounds like a pretty standard primary care practice not that primary care is ever standard but in march how did things change for you with the covid pandemic well it was pretty a pretty abrupt change i first I was involved in a lot of planning and discussions about redeployment. So, um, you know, were we going to have to work in the emergency room? Were we going to have to work in the hospital? How would we how would we figure that out? So, we we stopped seeing patients in the office, and we're first figuring out what would happen if there was a surge in our state. And then, the next thing that kind of happened is we separated our offices into offices that were there for patients who were had a possibly a possible infection, a fever, a cough. And we saw those patients in one setting and then all of our patients who we were well, we could see them in another setting. And so as we split those sites up, I was I found myself working at both sites. And then slowly over that time, we started to integrate more and more first uh, phone visits. So calling patients to see them and then pretty quickly um, started to use video as well to see patients. And so as I described kind of at the beginning of the article that you mentioned, one of the, you know, one of the first things I had to do once that was happening was kind of sit down and look at a list of my patients. You know, I perhaps see 60 patients a week or so and say, okay, of these 60 patients that I would normally see this week, normally I would have seen them all in the office. How many of them can I give a phone call to? How many of them could I try to connect with by video? And how many of them do I need to see in the office? So when you started doing these phone visits and televisits, Paul, um, how did it change things for you? What concerns did you have? And, and how, did you have trouble connecting with patients as you might uh, with a face-to-face -face visit? It was, it was very challenging. I think the, the first question, which I just hadn't 
had to ask myself before was, what can I do via phone? And then really at this point, we're predominantly using video and what, what might I miss and what do I actually need to see in the office? You know, so that was really a question that I hadn't had to ask myself previously. And so, you know, I give the example of a patient who might be dizzy, you know, and I might be able to figure out some of the causes of what might be making them dizzy via a video appointment. But sometimes I really felt like I need to get them in the office and check their blood pressure when they're standing and when they're laying down. So Sarisha, over to you for a minute. You came to CAC, it was a, about a year ago or 18 months ago, as I recall. Um, just celebrating my two years. Two like... years. Time flies. So, and you came to CAC uh, to help spearhead tel telehealth here. So what's to you the appeal or the draw of telehealth? Yeah, so, you know, um, back in 2015, 15, 2016, I was actually doing Zoom, visit, Zoom video visits at UCSF because uh, we were trying to, you know, launch this thing called telemedicine. And, you know, really the, the drive is um, the, this, um, this promise, actually, like telemedicine, telehealth has this, if you look at the umbrella terminology, it has this promise of really just improving public health in general to the entire population and what, whatever modality that is. Uh, whether it's, you know, telepsychiatry or telephysical therapy, it has this promise of actually improving our health as a whole, on, on, you know, as a whole. And so really that's, that's the biggest draw to me. So prior to COVID here at USC, I remember we were sort of dabbling in telehealth, if that's fair to say. Um, could, how many visits were we doing per month before COVID hit? And then how did that change afterwards? Yeah. So, you know, there were certain departments, um, you know, like urology was really good. There were just a couple of departments. Some of the surgical specialties were just really good at doing their post-ops through um, telemedicine. But, you know, I it, there was such a discrepancy before COVID about like, what was telemedicine? You know, we only did maybe, I want to say like 20 to 40 telemedicine visits because it was restricted about who we could actually see through telemedicine. And that was, that's just based on insurance plan. And I think if I have the number right, Sarisha, we're now doing uh, over the summer, several thousand visits uh, a week. Is that correct? Oh yeah. I mean, you might know the bet. I wish I had knew the numbers, um, but yeah, definitely well into the thousands. So, so let me ask this question for both of you. There's been a rapid uptick in, in televisits. There's been a shift out of the traditional four walls of the primary care uh, exam room where you can do a comprehensive physical exam. Do you think these changes are here to stay and are they for the better or for the for worse? And that question is to both of you. I think they are definitely here to stay. Um, I think as mentioned, part of what will dictate to what degree they stay is, is how insurance companies decide to pay for these going forward. And I think it's, I think that there's a lot of positive things that can come out of us using telehealth to a greater extent there there's um so i think that it really uh, it can improve access for patients who have trouble getting into the office um i think for a certain for certain types of visits um there is there's really not a need to be in the office but i do think as with any kind of technological change or advance there 
there are, can be unintended consequences. What are some of those fail-safes we can do to make sure there aren't unintended consequences, that we don't lose that connection, that we don't miss out on some of those things that are made possible by an in-person physical exam? To be honest, Mike, I'm really, I'm worried about that. I, I, I don't know, you know, for the people who are the decision makers, whether it be insurance companies or, you know, the federal government, you know, as we look at what high quality care is and what cost effective care is and what, how we care for our population, um, where in that calculus do we put kind of the humanistic side of medicine? You know, who's and who's at the table advocating for that? I think it is, you know, I, I worry that there isn't enough emphasis on it. I guess to have enough emphasis on it, you would want to have um, both patients and primary care physicians at the table as you're re redesigning um, care delivery. And you would want to, you know, as you're thinking about what you want care to look like, you want to somehow, you know, uh, identify this kind of humanistic part of medicine and, and maintain it. I, I don't know how to do it because it's not, it's not data. You know, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to kind of wrap my, wrap your head around it. So Sarisha, what's your take? What are the pros and cons of the, the shifts that have been happening? I, I agree, you know, with Paul, I think telemedicine is here to stay, you know, um, policy is never easy to move or shift until there is something like a pandemic. So, um, yeah, I do. I think I, I go, actually going back to what Paul was saying too, right? So um, we providers, our sole basis of practice is on evidence. Um, you know, we all try to practice evidence-based medicine and that's really how we're trained. It's how we teach. It's how we deliver our care. It's what we, it's what we do every single day. And, you know, we're really kind of put in circumstances where we don't really know if what what the outcomes, what the evidence is for telemedicine. Uh, can we just monitor some, somebody remotely? I have a patient of mine. We were able to connect on Zoom, and she's actually been ordering home monitor kits to like track her A1C. She's got a blood pressure cup at home. She is she's getting a continuous glucose monitor, and so she's utilizing all these different technologies. So that way she can actually just control her diabetes herself practically from the convenience of her of her home. Um, and so, you know, she feels very safe. She doesn't want to go out. And, you know, with, with the, she absolutely has the right to do that. But I think it's going to be super interesting and why data and research is going to be so instrumental in figuring out what do, what are these outcomes going to look like, not just now and not just in a year, five, 10, you know, 15 years, we're going to have to figure out how all of these technologies are going to be incorporated into into our 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 way right our our um our practice of evidence-based care so agree with paul that we got to we got to figure out the outcomes we got to figure out the evidence because i think telemedicine is absolutely here to stay well i'll just say briefly um in my experience, um, the televisits, the patients that I already have established and met in person, I have a lot better ability to connect with them than the people that I'm meeting for the first time through a televisit encounter. I still am able to get there, but sometimes it takes two or three televisits before I really feel like I know them. Uh, whereas some of the patients I already know, I, I do find it much easier. A lot of my listeners are patients themselves. So what advice do you both have as primary care doctors um, 
for patients who should think about doing a televisit, who should you should schedule visits in person, and is there anything special that patients should do to prepare themselves to take best advantage of a televisit? It's still unknown to me sometimes which visits are going to be better versus uh, telehealth and which visits are going to be better in person. I think some things that often lend themselves to a telehealth visit would be something like uh, where you're discussing a medication that you're changing for your diabetes and you're able to check your sugars at home or you're changing a medication around um, that's impacting your focus um, or your anxiety and, you, and you're trying to change those medications around. I think like what Sarisha said, the more tools you have at home, the more possibility there is to do things from a telemedicine visit. So if you're able to check your blood pressure at home and your weight, you're able to do those things, the more tools you have, the more possibility you could do a telehealth visit. And I think you can always start with a telehealth visit. And then if there's a realization that you need to come into the office, that can always happen. One thing, one thing I would emphasize is that um, it's really important to try to be present for the telehealth visit. So to have your focus on the visit, I can't, it's interesting to go through this experience with my patients. And some of them are like totally focused on, on the visit at hand. And some of them, they're, you know, just like for all of us, their kids are running around the room or they're in the middle of their work day in the car in the parking lot or they're running around. And, and so when patients would come into the office, you know, I, I understand that it's a, a big ask of their time to come into the office, but they're, you know, that once they're there and once I'm seeing them, we're focused on their health. And so I think it is really important for patients to try their best to really be find a space where they can um, completely focus on their health for that time during the visit. Yeah, you know, I, one thing I was actually just wanted to bring up is, you know, we're also, when family medicine started, you know, we started our pilot project back in October. Our, our goals were like to increase access. And then our other goal was to really figure out how patients feel about telemedicine, what they think. And, um, you know, going back to, to Paul, what you were saying, um, you know, the lack of a physical exam is definitely something that patients feel is important to their visit. So it actually about we've we've been able to have about 650 response, patient responses to our telemedicine survey, um, and so but but when we ask okay how do you feel about being charged a copay for these visits the number one reason why they feel that it maybe it's not reasonable to be charged a copay is because there is no physical exam and so um, you know I think I think during you know all of this uncertainty it's just important to stay patient. It's important to just have um, understanding. The biggest, you know, piece of of, of um, counseling that I've given, not only to myself but to my patients, is just, you know, to have some self compassion. Uh, you know, so so to know that, you know, it's okay. It's okay to to feel stressed, and it's okay to kind of, um, you know, think think things are a little bit unreasonable. So let me try to broaden the discussion a little bit. Um, Primary care is not in a great place right now nationwide. Patients are not particularly happy with their access to primary care doctors. They frequently report that no one answers, returns their calls, no one calls with their lab results. Um, and there are fewer and fewer uh, primary care doctors who are staying in one place and having 30, 40, 50 year relationships with uh, people. Um, what are the solutions to, to this? And is it as big a problem as has been reported? 
I think those critiques are absolutely fair and true. Um, I think it's, you know, I live in, I live and work in a place where there's a reasonable amount of physicians for the patient population. And it is still hard to, you know, make, um, you know, to make things run smoothly. I think that there are, I think there's a workforce issue. So I think there's too few primary care physicians and that is potentially a place where you could solve things. I think that we use technology that is like archaic, which is, you know, a bit to this conversation today. So that, you know, we, it's amazing to me how we, we run medicine as such an inefficient system, you know, business <laughs> compared to many other um, businesses. You know, I spend more than half my time not seeing patients, right? Doing paperwork and, and, and charting and doing all this such. And, and then, so being a primary care provider is not such a, um, you know, highly appealing job to a lot of people coming out of medical school. So um, I, I worry about us, our ability to kind of replenish our workforce. Yeah, this is a, a subject that's really near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's being a primary care physician, um, primary care provider is definitely challenging. I mean, that's, that's kind of an understatement because so much of our, um, you know, when, when a cardiologist walks in the door, they're just looking at the heart. Um, when a, when a foot doctor is walking through the door, they're just looking at the foot. Um, when I walk into my patient's room, I'm not only looking at their blood pressure, vitals, uh, blood, recent blood work, um, all blood work, really. I'm also looking at, you know, mammography, pap smear, vaccines, um, colonoscopies. And so it's, it's much, and I take every opportunity, every, every primary care doctor, I think, always takes every opportunity to make sure it's okay, what are we missing here? What's missing in this? In the, because we're really, we're really about the care of the whole patient. And I think we really definitely uh, need more support from our institutions, from our leadership, from our Congress, from our patients um, to advocate for us because um, uh, we're really where it starts. And um, right now in our fee-for-service model of how we are quote unquote paid for the services we provide, you know, is that really the best model or does it need to be more of a hybrid between quality um, you know, uh, you know, fee for service versus versus kind of more quality measures. And so we'll have to continue again to see what that looks like. Well, I certainly agree with you. And I think it's uh, fair to say that our balance of uh, investment and focus in primary care versus complex specialty care in the United States is very different from what it is in other parts of the world. And I might even say go as far as to say it's actually worse because we know that Health systems that are built on a strong primary care foundation are much better in terms of population health outcomes, how long people live, how satisfied they are with the health care they receive compared to um, other systems. And I don't know exactly what the policy solution is uh, here. You know, I, I'm optimistic that that innovations like uh, televisits can can take some of the burden off, that some resource investment in other team-based approaches with nurses and medical assistants and pharmacists uh, can help us take better care of patients. But um, but I also know the dollars are, are not always there. And if you look at the budgets, uh, it's the surgeons and the specialists that bring in the money. And that's where a lot of the investment uh, goes. So we are a little bit in a, a catch-22. 
So I wanted to end, this has been a great discussion so far with one other uh, financially related uh, question. There has been an attack, even an assault on the annual physical exam um, going on. We've been told that some of the professional societies have been uh, giving the message that um, patients do not actually need to come in for an annual physical exam. And this has been driven by some studies that have compared um, outcomes among people who get like an insurance company wellness visit or a battery of tests for their employers uh, versus those who, who don't and they, they haven't uh, shown a benefit. But an important critique of these studies is they've never actually compared a longitudinal relationship with a primary care doctor versus not having that. What's your take on that? Um, maybe we'll start with you this time, Sarisha. Yeah, this is a great question. You know, um, uh, I think you've already hinted at it, Mike, but, you know, the, and this is something I teach to medical students and residents all of the time is that, you know, it, it really takes sometimes like three years to have that trusting relationship with your doctor. And so, um, you know, if somebody is having, struggling with, with depression, anxiety, you know, and, and, um, there may be an increase of, you know, suicide risk. That's something that, you know, a, a relationship with your primary care doctor, it just takes that time to form. Um, or maybe they're struggling with, you know, alcohol or other addiction, and maybe they're not comfortable describing it, you know, in the first couple times. But I think the more and more we establish that relationship of, of somebody that's truly there from an authentic perspective and is there to take care of you as a whole person, not just your lab, right? we're always taught as medical students, don't treat the number, treat the patient. And so, um, you know, regardless, we definitely know that that people with over blood pressures of over 130, over 80 need an A1C. And so I think you're right. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think we need to actually, um, again, we're taking, we're taking data in terms of these quantitative numbers and, me, and not really putting an experience of an actual relationship that's maybe just more more in terms of quality and something that you can actually describe as a as a relationship that you keep um, that you keep for life. And so, you know, you don't just check the box if you have a job or have a mom and dad or have a car, or have a house. You actually have to look at. And I always tell this to my patients all the time. At the end of the day, it's about your quality of life. And the more that I can understand that, the more we can form a relationship. We can order labs or not order labs. That's really not the purpose. The purpose is to just have that person that's looking out for your total well-being. How about you, Paul? Is should should patients uh, give up on that annual physical? No, I think. I mean, and maybe you're asking this in two ways. One is around an annual physical with a head-to-toe examination in person. I don't know if you're um, splitting it up into that. And so I think I don't think all patients need to. Um, come into the office to be examined head to toe every year, I'd say, you know, patients um, who are well, um, you know, don't have a lot of illness, that can be done much more frequently. But I do agree um, that you patients need to be, you, you need time to, like you guys have said, to establish a racial relationship and have regular visits. And, you know, I guess it doesn't, partly it doesn't matter to me what that visit is. If I saw a patient four times over two years because we were managing their, a medication for their blood pressure and I had time to develop a relationship, that would be fine too. But in the absence of something like that, I think having an opportunity to sit down with someone and, and get to know them and kind of build that trust is important. And 
Well, I, I, I think that actually gave me some good advice because uh, I've struggled with that. I don't want to be thrusting uh, unnecessary services on patients, but I think the way you both said it, that there's some intangibles there about the relationship. And even if we don't need to do a head to toe physical every year, um, there's still value in, in having establishing that relationship over a couple of years so that when something arises, um, we're, we're ready. And that's something I just don't think the existing literature can, can capture. So, uh, so I think we're all in, in agreement uh, to listeners that uh, there certainly is value in keeping a strong tie with a ongoing primary care doctor and whether or not that consists of an annual head to toe physical or not uh, there's more to that relationship than just that well i just want to thank you both uh, sarisha and paul for for joining me today it's great to hear from people on the front lines um, and you had some great insights and, and perspectives if you liked what you heard today please uh, search for us healthy skeptic md on YouTube, on any podcast uh, listening service that you use, on Instagram, and tune in again next week for our next episode. Thanks for joining.